All right, well, this morning we look to uh, the Psalter. We go to Psalm 11, and I believe it is a fitting psalm, it, although it doesn't have a direct connection to the text that we'll be studying uh, in the days ahead in Matthew 18. I believe a, a break from Matthew brings us to uh, what is written uh, in this particular Psalter in the way of how the Lord judges, the Lord being a righteous judge. And uh, the title of, of this sermon is The Foundation of the Righteous, The Foundation of the Righteous, because this psalm deals with what it means not only to be righteous, but the foundations upon which the righteous stand. And so there are, uh, by way of contrast, in these seven verses that speaks of justice, that speaks of righteousness, that speaks of wickedness, that speaks of mercy. And in that we see characteristics, uh, divine characteristics and attributes of who God actually is. And I think any Sunday that we can come to the Word of God and look at who God is, uh, we have certainly honored Him in that way. And so I wanted to take our time this morning to look at Psalm 11, as we will fix our thoughts on this text this morning, but we'll look ahead to what we have in the next uh, few verses in Matthew 18 when we return to that chapter. Uh, so Psalm 11, so I'll read the text and then we'll, uh, we'll begin to explain what it means. So uh, Psalm 11. For the choir director, a psalm of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string, to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked, and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain snares. Fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. When we look to the perfections of God, otherwise known as the attributes of God, but I like to also call them the perfections of God because they're not simply characteristics of who God is, they are his perfections because God is perfect. And therefore, when we look at his perfections, we are looking at the sum of who he is. But when we look at them, especially in the Psalter, we, we understand how all of his perfections work together. And they work together at maximum capacity for all time with no perfection at odds with the other. So in this passage, you will see that. You will see that not only is God a God of love, but he's also a God of wrath. He's a God who's a righteous judge, and yet he's a God who is a God of mercy. A study of the person of God begins with what? It begins with the faith that he is. It begins with faith that he is. That is, it begins with his self-existence. The fact that he is God alone and depends on nothing or no one for his sustenance and being. It also assumes that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And that is the language of scripture in Hebrews chapter 11 verse 6 because when we come to God as the rewarder of those who diligently seek him we are acknowledging something about him we are acknowledging his benevolence or his goodness there was a psalm that we had uh, gone through together where we looked at the goodness of God 
the goodness of God. So his benevolence are for those who belong to him, for those who seek him. It is not that God is simply good because we accomplish what we will for ourselves. It is he is good because we seek him for who he is. And so we'll see that in this psalm. But we'll also see a divine truth, a divine truth that God is just. God is just. And so when we look to this Psalter, we see that God is just. He is a God of justice. He is the God of justice. And he dispenses his justice perfectly. And so we live in a time where justice is not perfect because you have imperfect men trying to mete out justice. And that is not an excuse for injustice, but it is a, a, a truth that there is uh, there are those who aim to, to rule in a certain manner and they are not able to mete out justice in a way that is met with perfection. And this is why. God is perfectly just. But it is also expected of those who know and love him to exercise justice, to exercise justice. For you'll see that in the way of the righteous in this text, that those who are deemed righteous by him are supposed to exercise justice toward one another. And I would say that that is a mark of one who truly knows the Lord, that they can come to terms with his true justice. They want his outcome. They want his will to be done. And that will includes justice, includes justice. And I'm not talking about the type of justice uh, that we see today, the social, uh, the social justice paradigm, uh, the social warrior justice. And many of these ideas are competing against one another in the modern sense of justice, where you have individuals angry with people who are also angry with God, and yet they want justice. But they don't want the kind of justice that God wants. They want justice that satisfies themselves. This is not what this Psalter is about. God is a God of justice. He's a God of justice. And certainly justice joined to other divine virtues, he demonstrates such as wisdom, mercy, and compassion. Because those are also characteristics of who God is. And the righteous ones, those who belong to him, exercise justice along those lines. And they may not be in positions, uh, even believers in the New Covenant may not be in positions to make the kinds of decisions to demonstrate justice. But the one thing that is true about them is that they are always wanting God's outcome. They want his righteousness to rule and reign. And therefore, they want justice. Uh, to believe that God is not dependent on any man, because that is what this Psalter assumes that is what Psalm 11 is demonstrating to us, that David is, in a sense, revealing that God is the one in whom he takes refuge. Therefore, it's not the other way around. Therefore, God himself is not dependent on man. When we cry out to God, we are also crying out to the fact that he is the supreme ruler over every man. When we speak of God this way, we are speaking of his sovereignty. And that is a term that you may or may not be familiar with, but it is a term that is used frequently. The positive sense in which the term is used is the right way, that God is the one who rules with divine prerogative over all men and all things, over his whole creation. That no one rules over God, he is supreme ruler. 
He has the divine prerogative. He can do as he wants. And he has unrivaled power to rule and reign over his creation. And so understanding that is to then go to him as the God of refuge, as the one in whom you take refuge. He is the one who protects. And we looked at that even in our time together uh, in the last uh, in the last week when we were looking at uh, the passage before us. Uh, we were speaking of how God, even in Matthew 18, how he entrusts uh, protection and care to his angels and to himself over his elect, over those who cry out and know him. But David tells us something of God's ability to preserve and protect his creatures. And you see it both, we'll take the approach where we look throughout the text, but you also see it in the particular verses. But as we look at the verses before us, the seven verses before us, we see a few things. We see that David, as he is crying out to God for who he is, he trusts in him. He flees to him. He speaks of a God who can see all things, a God who examines the motives of the righteous and the wicked. Examines the motives of the righteous and the wicked. He tests them. In verse 6, we see he avenges his own. He avenges his own. He loves his righteous ones just as he himself is love. In verse 7. As we look to the first verse, we consider how the Lord has preserved his son David. In the Lord I take refuge. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? David was... A king, a righteous king, an anointed king, the king whom God had raised up to rule over his people. So he was an appointed ruler by God himself. To David, he promised there would be an eternal kingdom and an eternal ruler who would occupy the Davidic throne forever. And this covenant with David was not a conditional one, but it was an unconditional one. And yet David would not live a life that was absent of challenges to that throne or challenges to his very existence. And of course, we know the consequences of his sin with Bathsheba. That he forfeited some temporal benefits of being the ruler and the king of Israel. And his sin caused the sword not to depart from his house. However, the Lord did promise an unconditional covenant that in spite of what David did, that the Lord would raise up a Messiah, an anointed one, to occupy the throne forever and ever for all time. David could do nothing to breach the covenant promise in the sense that he could do nothing to eliminate this eternal ruler. Nor could David put a stop to the eternal kingdom. His flesh would try. His enemies would try. But what we do see in David is a man throughout his life ready to repent. A man who certainly committed sins against God. A man whose family committed sins against God. A man who did righteous things because God appointed to him and credited to him the righteousness that he demonstrated. He was anointed by God's spirit to perform righteousness. And therefore, David did have a very clear sense 
of what was righteous and what was wicked. David himself would experience enemies. Enemies would rise up and contend against the promise. They would uh, contend against the eternal throne to come. So many of his uh, psalms that are written in the Psalter are him pleading with God to help him to help to help overcome, to help overcome both the enemies that were challenging his walk with God himself, the enemies that were challenging the kingdom. He also pleaded with God in the midst of his own sins to please forgive him, to create within him a renewed spirit. This was a man after God's own heart. This was a man after God's own heart. And so often when you're reading what David is saying, especially in the context of the Psalter, especially here, and, and I, I measure that against what takes place in the history of David in Old Testament books such as Samuel and Chronicles. But when we look at what is said by David himself in the Psalter, we are seeing a man who is walking with God, a man who is pleading with God to bring about the eternal promise for which he had granted to him and that is not in the absence of trials it is in the midst of trials but we also see that David was an eternal minded king he was an eternal minded ruler just as the Christian is to be eternally minded we see that David was this way because the nature of David's cries as we'll look at in the verses that follow were not simply the preservation of an earthly kingdom when David speaks of the treacherous, when he speaks of enemies, he's not only speaking of the fact that he wants the kingdom of Israel to go on forever and ever in the temporal sense, but he's speaking of God dealing spiritually with those who are assaulting God himself. In the midst of spiritual warfare, David is crying out for help. He's looking at the spiritual war, not necessarily the natural war. He's looking at the spiritual war. And in spiritual warfare, what they are, uh, what a spiritual war is designed to do, it is to shake foundations. It is to shake foundations. And that is the language of the New Testament. The fact that we inherit an unshakable kingdom. That we ourselves are unshakable if we are in Christ. For Paul speaks that way in Romans chapter 8 when he says who then can separate us from the love of God but David was one who understood that this was a spiritual war even though it may have played itself out naturally but it was a spiritual war and he was conflicted with how he might conduct himself in the midst of the wicked conflicted in the sense of was it worth it to be righteous upon this earth to, and not necessarily to sin, but to be one who wants righteousness upon this earth versus one who wants judgment uh, for the wicked? That was the conflict. But what you'll see here is that the Lord actually answers for him uh, what is necessary in his own heart, that he is to want both justice and mercy. That there will be a culminating time where God will judge all of his enemies. And there will be a time where the wicked will have to pay recompense for what they've done. 
But there's also a time for which God dispenses mercy. All David was called to do is to be righteous. To be righteous. And the way that the enemy is presented in this particular text is a deliberate way. It's a deliberate way. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They make ready their arrow upon the string to shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. You'll notice a few things about that verse. One is archery. Archery. The use of bow and arrow in the sport of gaming. And although at this time it was not necessarily a sport, it was a way of life. It was a way that people ate. That they would have to kill game with the bow and the arrow. But archery as we know it, to help you just by way of an analogy, archery, archery by, uh, by, by the way we know it, uh, requires discipline. It requires discipline. There is a very deliberate focus when you are to aim at a target and you're shooting to hit that target. And as I mentioned, more than a sport in our context, the bow and the arrow was a very urgent and precise weapon. And without it being effective, a man would not eat, nor would his family. It was used for hunting and gathering food. And it took no less skill in that context than it does in the modern context of sport. The, mo the, the modern archer, just as the ancient one, had to have the trained eye. His eye had to be trained. And he was supposed to hit his target with precision. And within archery, there's a certain deception. There's a certain deception that you don't want to tip off that which you're aiming at. You don't want to cause too much of a rustle because then your game would flee the scene. In war, archers were able to fight effectively from a distance. They were able to conceal their whereabouts. And in doing so, they proved most effective. They were able to take the high ground and shoot at those who were at the low ground. It was very effective. The Bible speaks very much about arrows. It speaks of it in the context of those who are assailing the righteous. This is not the only place. There are other places. But it is a very disciplined endeavor. But these arrows in verse 2 are aimed at the upright. They're aimed at the righteous. And what we see here is the nature of wicked men and the nature of the wicked. For David pleads with the Lord in the sense of what does he do? What does he do in the face of wicked men who use the cloak of night to prevail on their target? The darkness is their camouflage, and their aim is precise. Their hearts are filled with hatred, and they seek to overcome the righteous. And so with David, what we see is a man who is consumed with the righteousness of God because he wants the wicked to be accounted for. He wants them to be addressed. Here David does not simply say men shoot arrows at their target. He doesn't use simple language. 
He shows the premeditation and patience required to aim and shoot. And this is the same patience and premeditation the, the wicked rely on to shoot at the upright in heart. That those whose hearts are after God's own heart, as David's was. Those who love righteousness and love the God of righteousness and love the righteous judge. Their enemies are not passive. Here, these were enemies of righteousness. These were enemies of righteousness. And they were found assaulting the kingdom of Israel and the anointed king who God had appointed. It says the wicked bend the bow and they make ready their arrow upon the string. This is a very delicate and deliberate thing. To shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. To shoot in darkness at the upright in heart. For David, the expectation is to fight them all in the strength of the Lord, trusting in him. However, they were unseen. They were unseen. How can you say to my soul, he says in verse 1, flee as a bird to your mountain? While his enemies were numerous, they were unseen. He could not prevail on all of them because they were not of a natural order, but they were of a spiritual order. And so to overcome and to overwhelm them, he could not do so on his own. He had to trust in God's ability, in God's perfect justice. He could not contend effectively in spiritual war without being granted God's spirit and power to do so. In the Old Testament, that did not look like the indwelling of the Spirit of God. But for David, the ruler, it looked like the Spirit of God being placed upon him to accomplish what he will for the purposes of God's redemptive plan in the kingdom. But these, these enemies were unseen. But we see that in verse 2. They shoot in darkness. They're shooting in darkness. You can't see them. And yet there were those who hoped he left the throne and sought shelter away from the Lord. But in that sense, David was to look to the Lord for refuge, to look to the Lord for refuge. This is the language of the wicked uh, fleeing the righteous. There will come a time where that takes place. The wicked fleeing uh, when no one pursues, and yet the righteous fleeing the appearance of evil. But what the righteous flee to is not themselves. They flee to God for refuge. If verse 2 is the effect, then verse 3 was the cause. Look at verse 3. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? For what reason do you think in verse 2 that those who were cloaked by darkness felt so compelled to shoot. The very fact that the wicked assail the righteous is a reality before us that there is no fear. There is no fear of God. There is no immediate impending fear of judgment. It is why they assault the righteous. It is why in this context they assault the throne of David. And I hope that in your mind you begin to see something of what is taking place at Calvary. That there are people who would even kill the Messiah, God's son. And they would do so and think that there is no consequence for doing so. And yet, even 
that very act, because that is the culmination of all wickedness, to kill God's son. But that very act must have taken place so that the elect of God could be saved. And so God's goodness is evident where men are wicked. Even in that, we see God's power. Man cannot do that in the theater of spiritual warfare. Because when we aim to fight, we aim to fight sometimes according to the flesh. And sometimes we may want a just outcome, but the just outcome may be a selfish one that does not consider the totality of what the all-seeing God can accomplish for all time. But what is taken away from the land in the statement we find in verse 3 of Psalm 11, in the form of a question, it is the very idea of moral compass. It is the very idea of moral compass, rightness. What the generation, uh, generation before us or uh, half a generation uh, before us or generation and a half before us would have called moral rectitude, moral rectitude. That is a moral straightness to see things right, to walk the straight and narrow. However it's worded, what we do see is that is absent from the land because of the rhetorical question. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Don't tell me you have not in this hour asked that question in your own heart. Because we live in a time where the very foundations of what we believe to be righteous and holy and just and true are being not only abandoned but destroyed. The sense of what it means to be a family. The sense of what it means to be a male or female. The sense of what it means to be just. The sense of what it means to be a Christian. The sense of what it means to be gathered together in the church. The Bible itself is no longer welcomed in the public sphere. All of these things are happening at a rapid pace. And sometimes we ask in our own heart, maybe not in this very word for word verbatim uh, question, but we ask if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, you're in good company because that question has been asked for a few millennia. Ours is not the first generation to abandon righteousness. Ours is not the first nation to abandon righteousness. For the very nation to which God held his affection for, they abandoned righteousness. He gave them a king, a king they pled for. He anointed a king. He established his hand upon that king and the people were still wicked. It shows you that righteousness is not by proxy. It is not granted to those who are under righteous rulers. But let me turn that around for you. You have no excuse to be wicked in the midst, in the midst of prevailing wickedness. Because one can be righteous in the face of wickedness. But the very consequence of a moral straightness, a moral compass, and I'm not talking about moralism. I'm not talking about being moral and self-righteous 
for the purpose of earning salvation in Christ. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about the kind of righteousness that demonstrates one knows and honors the law of the Lord and therefore will do so from a heart that is fixed on him. That was absent from the land. As a consequence of that absence, the wicked sought war against the righteous. When you shake righteous foundations, what will take place is the wicked will assail the righteous. It should not surprise us when the wicked seek war against the righteous, when the wicked seek war against righteous foundations, when the wicked look at the moral fabric of a society and seek to dethrone it piece by piece and tear it apart and shred it. That shouldn't surprise us. But we also should not go in the direction of those who blame the righteous for wickedness. Wickedness is going to be uh, prevailing in the land, as we see in this text, until that day when judgment comes. So there are those who believe that they can simply drive out wickedness, all wickedness, by them being a collective. And that's not true. Yes, the Lord saves. And yes, there are those that he will save, but he will not save everyone. And inevitably, you will have wickedness and unrighteousness. You can preach the gospel and people will reject it and they will be wicked. And they might grow more wicked by hearing what you have just said because it excites their heart to rebel against the Jesus you have now proclaimed. And then there will be those who are saved. But what this tells us is David's cry does not result in God transforming temporal society. Because that is not what is in play here. God will destroy temporal society in order to establish his eternal kingdom. That is what will take place. That is the will of God. And that is the desired outcome of the righteous. We don't know the day or the hour that that will take place, but it is coming. Although this is natural language, what is explained here is a spiritual reality. It cannot be accomplished by natural means. For one, the text to this point implies the need to be righteous. The need to be righteous. Well, guess what? You can't be righteous on your own. Because the righteousness that is referred to even here is a righteousness not found in us. It is a righteousness in the Messiah who credits righteousness to the unrighteous. And I will tell you that every person, even sitting here, that every person prior to salvation in Jesus Christ has sat in the seat, has bent the arrow back, and has shot at the righteous. And so in and of ourselves, in and of myself, we would take the place with those who are aiming at the upright in heart. Sin does not take place in a vacuum. Sin assails God himself. Sin fights against his kingdom. Those who sin aim at not only God, but the righteous whom God has saved. The Messiah is the one who grants righteousness to the unrighteous. 
And he forgives them of their unrighteousness and sets upon their course salvation, righteousness, truth. But what David's rhetorical question reveals is the absence of law. It reveals the absence of law. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? If, if it is uh, the absence of law, then what we would call that is lawlessness. The absence of righteous judgments are also in his question. Since God had to intervene as judge later in the text, that you had individuals who could not judge rightly. And these are a symptom of a people who are wicked. Because I believe that many of what we're saying here this morning and many of what uh, many of the things that we're looking at together this morning are revealed in the world that we live in today. If nothing else, it sounds familiar. That there is the absence of law in many places, there is a certain prevailing lawlessness. There is a sense of uh, relative relative morals. Where people do what's right in their own eyes, such as the time in Judges. But there's also this, the need to be in him. The need to be found in Christ. The need to be watchful. Because there are those who are trying to assail the righteous. And the need for these things to take place is so that the wicked are not successful in their schemes to overthrow the righteous. And David knew this in the context of his kingdom. That he had to watch himself, he had to watch his enemies, and he had to care for those who were among the righteous. But verse 3 presses the absence of moral fabric in the society in that time. It professes... That the foundations are not only the ideals, but the foundations are the people who would be righteous and execute righteousness among the wicked. When you have the absence of righteous people, you will have the absence of righteous judgments. What you then will have is corruption, treachery, wickedness, pragmatism, people doing what they believe, whatever works. Whatever gets to my desired outcome, no matter of the moral implications or righteous or biblical implications. But man does not exist by his nature outside of the society that perpetuates and practices evil. Because if the society is evil, it is because evil men control that society. So that question points us to what will take place in the verses that follow in that, being evil, men do evil things. The same can be said of both the modern society in which we live and the modern confessing religion with which we are witness to. Evilness is not only permitted, but it is practiced. It is controlled by those who use it to their advantage against the righteous. Evilness is harnessed for the purpose of destroying the righteous. Sometimes it is dispatched quickly and sometimes it is used in a more deliberate and patient manner. But in verse 4 we see God's eminence, not to be confused with his imminence. 
for the eminence that is spelled with an A, that first deals with his intimate acquaintance with humanity and his creation. For David speaks of that. Look at verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. Look at verse. Now, if it just said that, we would see God as transcendent, but yet ineffective. Look at verse 4. 4b. His eyes behold. His eyelids do what? Test the sons of men. This ought to encourage our hearts that in a situation in which we find ourselves in the modern context and even as we look to what God accomplished in the Davidic covenant that even wickedness could not prevail upon his grand covenant scheme he is working within his creation but yet he is transcendent over it and this is where we deviate from the ideals of the so-called founding fathers of this nation who believed that God was simply a watchman winding a clock. And the clock is ticking and God himself has nothing to do with the events surrounding that winding except that he wound up the clock. The clock representing events in time. We do not believe as they did. We believe that God is working in the midst of a society even a society that tries to abandon him to accomplish righteous outcomes because that is a part of his sovereign power. He exists outside of the created order because he's self-existent and, and the preeminent one, the one who is before all things. So God is not a creation of the human man's mind. He is not a creation of the human construct. He is not as many a rebellious man and woman say a figment of those who are fearful of the events of today and therefore kind of a security blanket that is not who the God of the Bible is because the boldest people are the Christians the people who do not fear what will happen to them on their deathbeds are the Christians the people who throughout the history of Christianity who have faced martyrdom who have had to act courageously in the face of prevailing wickedness. It has been those who trust in Jesus Christ. So it is not a security blanket. The ones who have been among the most fearful, self-preserving, morally relativistic. It is those who have abandoned God himself because they seek to protect their own interests. God does not draw his existence from anyone else. And this is why David can go to him as his refuge. Since he is eternal necessary being and yet he is existent before all things and beings were created. He is the eternal one. And because that is true about him, man need not fear anything or anyone. Even when foundations are destroyed. Because those foundations, if they're destroyed, they were shakable. They were prone to destruction. They, that means that they could be destroyed. But also there will be judgment. There will be judgment. For his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. This speaks of God's holiness, that he is perfectly holy, that the cloak of night cannot hide his enemies from him. 
Why? Because he sees all things. No more than the deeds of the wicked done in secret go unnoticed by the one who sees not only what they do, but he sees the motives for why they do what they do. The idea in verse 5 is not only does the Lord see his creation, not only does the Lord see the righteous and the wicked, he examines the righteous and the wicked. He's not only looking at them, he's examining them. He's testing them. He also, like the only perfect judge he is, renders a verdict. Renders a righteous verdict toward both the righteous and the wicked. It says the Lord test the righteous and the wicked. Look at 5b. And the one who loves violence his soul hates. David knew this. David knew that God hated his enemies. And this is why he had the power to do what he did. In overthrowing God's enemies. In his ascension to the temporal throne. But it is also why David was punished. Because when David struck out his hand. Against Uriah. He was punished. Why? God hates violence. God hates not only violence. He hates those who love violence. Let me explain something to you that the world at large is not saying anymore. The Lord hates the wicked. The Lord hates the wicked. I don't say that with any apology. I don't say that with any equivocation. I don't say that and try to make an apology for it. The Lord hates the wicked and it says it plainly here and it says it in other places in the Bible. So when you have a generation in the world who thinks very universalist that says God is love and they act as though that that love is a sweeping thing that includes them and their sins. That is not true about the God we serve, that God hates the wicked. So if somebody asks you, does God hate? Yes. And when they say that they will not serve him because he hates I would throw that back at them and say, you won't serve him because you hate him. Therefore, you're capable of hate. But yes, God hates as he should. He's God. He can do as he pleases. We make no apology for that. Because some may stumble upon this text and try to explain away that he divorces sin from the sinner. But that's not true. It is why the sinner is experiencing wrath and hell eternally because God hates but God's hatred is just, perfect, and holy, and it is not in conflict with his love. But God's hate also ought to cause us to squirm. Because if we hate, we cannot hate in the manner perfectly as God does. God can hate something with perfection, holiness, a desire to see his eternal plan come to fruition. If you don't think God hates, then verses 6 and 7 may also, or verse, verse 6 may also bring about a discomfort to you. Because not only does God hate, he demonstrates his hatred toward the wicked. He despises their evil deeds and he despises them. He specifically hates those who are murderers. And we see that. Jesus has defined not only murder, but Jesus defined his own hatred toward those who were murderers. 
Now, some might pause here and say, well, can't God save a murderer? Yes, but he will not save them all. Therefore, he loves some and he hates some. We see that as we read the account of Esau and Jacob. That there is a hatred in the word of God that is a holy hatred that must be upheld for all time. It is not that men can't come to terms with God's hatred. They can't come to terms with hating like God hates. They can't come to terms with hating their sin. And therefore, they can't take God's side when he hates what they love. And that is what is happening in verse 5. Because there's one who loves violence, but yet God hates those who loves violence. He not only hates violence, he hates the violent one. Jesus Christ defined these things for us. He not only rebuked the religious establishment for their murderous deeds, but he rebuked them for possessing the kind of anger that identified them as murderers. Anger is murder without the consummated act, as Jesus defined in Matthew 5, 21 to 22. And this is one of the very symptoms of a society whose foundations are being shaken. It is incessant anger, incessant murder, incessant treachery, wickedness, and all these things. A wicked man can never do wickedness calmly. He may look calm on the surface, but in his heart is raging murder and anger and hatred. But the vision of the Lord is perfect vision, for he can see all things and he can see the motives of all men. What we see here when we see body parts or organs mentioned as those which the Lord has, it's called an anthropomorphism. What that does for us in this text, because... In the sense it says God has eyes, it ascribes physical parts to God. And it uses such illustrations to relate to what man can see and understand when we talk about God. However, God the Father does not possess human body parts as if he were a natural man. But this is to tell you that God as spirit, being worshipped in spirit and truth, can see all things at all times. It is funny, even in the manner of uh, dealing with young people, that they will sometimes conceal their motives. And I always, always tell them what I tell myself, God sees. As people say God knows, no, God sees too. He not only knows, he can see what you're doing. So if you say you're going to do one thing and you do not do it, or you say you'll be in one place and you're not there, God can see. God sees all things. He's looking at the very same things you're looking at. He's, his hands are touching the very same things your hands are touching. The thoughts that are coming out into the uh, actions of your body parts, your mouth speaking what it speaks. Imagine that God is actually looking at those very things. And there's nothing you can do to conceal it. And that's what's taking place in the heart of the wicked in this text. That he can see all things. And it is why the judgment is severe. Our text speaks of his eyes piercing and searching, examining the hearts of the righteous and the wicked. And when he found violence in the sons of men, he gave them a proverbial cup to drink. 
not a literal cup, but the cup signifies the instrument God uses to measure out what he wants a person to consume. If I were to hand you a cup, it is because I want you to drink its contents. If you recall in Psalm 23, David says, my cup overflows. Speaking of the blessing, the abundant provision and mercy, joy upon which the foundation that he rests upon is established and the eternal implications of drinking what is in that cup. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus petitioned God the Father to let what? This cup pass from me. In Revelation, the judgments are measured out, yes, in bowls, but it signifies the pouring out of something to be measured to the objects of persons for whom it is designed. Verse 6 shows what will be in their cup. Upon the wicked he will rain snares and fire and brimstone and burning wind will be the portion of their cup. It is hell itself. Those who do not belong to the seed of the woman, those who belong to the seed of the serpent, are guilty by position of assailing the throne and the promise of David. Every man and woman is in a spiritual war and are on a side, whether they are aware of it or not. Your aim is either to assault the throne or to worship the eternal one who will sit upon the throne forever. God loves and God's, God hates. God loves and God hates. You see in 6, he hates. Verse 5 and 6, he hates. 5, he hates because we're told he does. 6, in verse 6, he demonstrates that hatred. But we also see that God does love. God does love. But again, never let anyone tell you in the society with which we live that God does not hate. His hatred, though, is perfectly just. His hatred is perfectly just. Nowhere in this text do we see man scrutinizing God. Do we see man's eyes examining God? We see God examining men. But God does also love. God does also love. His love, however, is not placed in a vacuum. He doesn't love without qualification. For many men will openly profess that God loves. We can fill this place out four, five, six times over if our message was simply that God loves. We would be rich for people would pay for that kind of information. They might even throw on a concert and call it church. But that's not our message. Because even when we say God loves, we had better explain what he loves, how he loves, who he loves. Because you have men parading the nation, men standing before their people. And they tell them, they tell wicked people, God loves you. When they tell a wicked man that God loves them, that wicked man will be furthest away from repenting because he will love the thing God hates because he has been told that God loves him irregardless of what he does. It is a lie from hell to tell everyone God loves them. That is the language of Satan. It is false because in verse seven, let's look to the Bible for our evidence. Verse seven not only shows us 
how God loves, it shows what God loves. Right after judgment, it says, for the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. Let me explain something. The Lord loves those who are like him. He loves those who do that which he has given them to do. And this we mean righteousness. But he loves what he has granted to men. He loves those who we would say it simply this way. He loves those who are saved. He loves those who he has elected to salvation. And many will point to John 3.16 and say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes... Wait a minute. God does not love the world without qualification. He loves those who believe on him in that very text. Because in that text it tells us that he loves his believing ones. It's not whosoever believes. It is he loves believing ones. The very language in the Greek is not whosoever believes. It is believing ones that he loves. God loves believing ones and he hates wicked ones. That is not hate speech. That is truth speech. Now, while man can do nothing to reconcile himself to God's kingdom, the Bible is very clear what he ought to do and what he must do in the power that God enables him to do it. First, a man who wants to be loved by God must cry out to God. And when I tell you that a man who wants to be loved by God, you cannot want to be loved by God on your own. For only God can give you the gift of faith to desire to be loved by him. A man can only be righteous, whereby he confesses his sins before God and cries out to God for mercy for particular sins committed against God. Place his sole trust in Jesus Christ alone and in the finished work of the cross, trusting that God has dispensed wrath upon Christ meant for the sinner instead of dispensing wrath upon the sinner. <clears throat> it is to join yourself to the substitute. God hated sin so much that he dispensed wrath upon Christ, the perfect and holy one, charging to Christ the sins of the elect, not placing sins in Christ, but on Christ. Because Christ is the perfect substitute and the perfect sacrifice. The manner of love that God loves is pleased with the righteousness he credits to the account of his elect. He only loves those whom he has saved, his believing ones. In fact, the language of John 3 in total is dealing with the doctrine we call imputation, that is crediting to the believer's account a righteousness outside of themselves. But even that passage assumes what? Judgment. It assumes judgment. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. For those whom God loves, he has given his son. Unless you believe that God has given his son for all men, then you would, of course, believe that God loves all men without qualification. But God does not love all men without qualification. 
And why? Because his love also leads somewhere in the future. When God loves a man or woman or child whom he has saved, it's not simply doting them with temporal gifts. It is giving them eternal life. He actually accomplishes eternal life. It is not simply the hope of eternal life. It is not you may think you have eternal life, but you're not sure if you do, and you don't know if you do, and you have to do something in order to ensure it. That is not divine love. Divine love accomplishes eternal life on your behalf because you couldn't. And therefore, divine love points to a reward. Your reward is God himself. Look at verse 7 as we close. The upright will behold his face. Those whom love God will be brought to God. The goal of being loved by God is to worship him forever. The goal of being saved by God is to be with him forever, to be reconciled to him. The goal of God's sacrifice on behalf of sinners is to be joined to Christ the substitute. God is the reward of those who are righteous. And it is why in the text which we find ourselves this morning in Psalm 11, why David's cry is for God to be his protection in the face of the wicked, an eternal protection, because the wicked will inevitably perish, and that protection from the wicked will no longer be necessary. Because God will be not only your refuge, but he will be your reward. May God bless this text before us this morning.